What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by special guest Tom Luongo. So if you didn't catch the Twitter spaces, I have about a three and a half hours on my YouTube that you can go in and listen. He gets in deep into his thesis. I reference it a couple times during this episode. So be sure to check it out there and subscribe to the YouTube. Please, please, please help support the show. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts and give it a five-star rating to kind of help boost this up and allow me to get great guests like Tom. And if you've ever heard Tom go into his rant, his spiel, his thesis, he is extremely passionate and honestly just overall like brings the heat during the conversation. So it's a very fun conversation. We have a good back and forth. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, I kind of have a similar view to what Tom sees in the world. Maybe not as, as brash as he can put it, but he does uh, have a way with his words and he kind of goes into it. So uh, be sure to buckle up for this action-packed episode as we're diving in deep here with Tom Luongo for an hour-long exclusive interview. So on that note, ladies and gents, as a reminder, this is not financial advice. Please, please, please do not take it as financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is for opinion purposes only and should not be taken as financial advice. Not opinion purposes. I don't know why I'm saying that. It's for entertainment purposes. But hey, it is our opinion. So now let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. And for those listening on any podcasting 2.0 apps, such as Fountain and Streaming Me Sats, I'm very thankful. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And for those who are listening on other mediums like audio or YouTube, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or to my YouTube. And if you're listening on Just Audio, subscribe to the YouTube. Come over, watch the videos, do all that kind of stuff. Help support the show, spread it around. And thank you so much for all the support. It helps me bring on great guests like I have sitting here waiting on me. I've got Tom Luongo, who I don't know if you guys like tuned in on the spaces on Tuesday night. Um, what was it? I, I can't even think of the date at this point. It was like the 7th or something like that. But um, yep. we, we were ripping for like three hours and you were going in on that night. So uh, but Tom, how are you doing today? We're, we're recording this on Friday morning. So how you, you already got your stogie ready. Oh yeah. Well, you know, if we're going to do this, like I have to do this with the stogie because it's like, it's almost be see in the early years when I used to stream, I used to do live streams with, in front of like 20 people in my, into my phone. I used to wear my cowboy hat. It was my, my, what I used to call my goat wrangling hat. And so that was the, that was the thing. Like, dude, where's the hat? Um, now it's got to, you know, if I can, if it's a nice day out here in Florida and it's gorgeous morning here in North Florida, like I'm firing up the stove, we're doing it on my back porch. And cause I don't care about, I don't want to be locked in my office. Cause you know, my office, eh, it's better. I mean, like I got the dogs barking and the nature's where I did the, the stream the other night. So I just enjoy, I'd rather be out here if I can, if I can do it and it's not 95 degrees and you know, I'm not sweating to death. So. Amen. Right. I mean, so I'm not too far from you. I'm in I'm in Tampa. I'm in Cigar City down here. So, I mean, you, you should come down and get a, get a nice stove down here. But yeah, I mean, the, the weather in the in the springs, like early winter time or, you know, January, February in the morning is just unbelievable. Can't be yeah, surprisingly nice here in Mar in early in, in mid-March for um, where I am, which has been described many times as the eighth circle of Dante's hell um, <laughs> because. 
I have friends who are like, dude, I've been all over the world. I've been to the, I've been to the jungles of Malaysia. I've been to South America. I've been to the, you live in one of the hottest places in the world that no, it's so inhospitable. It's not like, cause it's a mixture of hot and wet and bugs. And it's just, yeah, you know, it may be 95, but we'll have a heat index of 110 with 95% humidity. It's just awful. You know? Yeah. Like you just don't go outside for four months. So yeah, it's tough for sure. But let's, let's break it down from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So for those, you know, that listen to the spaces, I'm sure they heard the, the long rant, but we didn't really get into you. You mentioned it a couple of times, how you're a chemist mm-hmm. and everything like that. So why don't mm-hmm. you get into a little bit about your background and kind of how you got really interested into economics and just kind of breaking down markets and, you know, really putting out the content that you do. Well, the easy answer to that is I lost my, I lost my ass in um, Y2K and the, and the, bust of Y2K. And it just led me to, it wasn't a lot of money because I was poor. I was working as a, I was working as an adjunct uh, researcher in a, uh, for a research group um, doing, uh, doing metabolic study of arsenic and monkey and Cebus monkeys as a, as a proxy for human absorption of, 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 uh, of arsenic. And I know, I know more about, and have forgotten more about, you know, art, the, how arsenic flows through the human body than most people would ever even consider having learned. Um, and I've done all sorts of weird things over the years, but, um, it, it led me to going, okay, so what happened? Why did this happen? And within a couple of months, you know, then I, I that job ended. I, I wound up taking a job south of Ocala. I was living in Gainesville at the time. For those of you who don't know, that's about a, an hour trip. So I had an hour commute every day and I started listening to a lot of talk radio and, uh, and it just kind of, eventually I got led to the Mises Institute. And to lewrockwell.com. And they seemed to start having the answers. And then I just fell down the quote unquote libertarian rabbit hole. And I had always been a, for the most part, apolitical. I don't, from the time I was six, I was like, oh yeah, both the Republicans and the Democrats suck. Like they all, they're all corrupt. They're, I mean, I literally could see this, even though my parents were kind of, you know, kind of classic uh, middle-class uh, uh, civil servant Republicans. My dad was NYPD. My mom was a nurse. Um, you know, we were from a bat, we're from an immigrant Italian household, um, you know, and uh, so, you know, bricklaying and th- this is our, this is our blood, right? So trans, I have cousins who, you know, work at the transit authority and I've listened to this stuff my entire life. So there's always, you know, in New York, the working class, like the Staten Island and the certain sections of Brooklyn culture are very, very kind of classically Republican, right? Whereas the rest of, of of like manhattan and queens and whatnot absolutely not long island then tends to be a little bit more like uh, it, it breaks down it, it, for those of you who aren't versed in new york you just don't know where the breakdowns are right and unfortunately manhattan just over overwhelms everything and manhattan rockland and orange county uh, not orange county but rockland and, and uh rockland county just it just overwhelm and westchester county sorry just overwhelm um uh, New York politics, but the rest of the state is very conservative. So, um, so I was, that was already fertile ground for me. It was like coming home. And then from there, it just, my, it became my hobby and then it became my obsession while I was still being a chemist. And then when that career ended in around 2011, um, I had always fancied myself to become a writer. I had to figure out how to, how to make my way in the world again. I was 40 years old with a BS in chemistry and no PhD, and no PhD, no masters and no, uh, MBA, I had all the experience, but in an HR dominated world, credentials matter more than experience. 
And therefore I was on, I was literally unhirable. And, um, by 2013, I fell in with some various people. I, I, I fell in with a, a broker over in, over in Vietnam. We, we did a lot of work together for a while. And I, I, I learned how to read charts, issue research reports, you know, all of this stuff. And, uh, just two kind of very ambitious guys, you know, making, I'm making nothing as we try to build this thing out. And eventually I got picked up by Newsmax and then now I, this is how I am today. Right. I started writing a gold newsletter for them uh, in 2013. That gig ended in 2017. I went independent with Gold, Goats and Guns in late 2017. Um, I got hired back by Newsmax to write a different newsletter in 2019. I now do both of them at the same time. So this is where I am. And uh, I just go to where the story is. Yeah, I got you. And and it's great stuff, right? I mean, I, I think it's like really unique, too, because you know, a lot of your stuff is like self-taught kind of just through experience and other things like that, where, you know, a lot of things are, or a lot of the content that I see out on like financial Twitter and other things like that. It's mostly people who are managing a bunch of money or, you know, have some sort of degree or have been kind of working on Wall Street, Merrill Lynch, you know, Goldman, these kind of people. Whereas, you know, you kind of have like a little differing opinion uh, than those people. So, you know, how do you think that your chemistry background and other things like that, you know, has kind of shaped your your mindset when it comes to investing? Is it more so because, you know, you kind of go through each problem using like the scientific method or kind of going through that process just naturally? Or uh, do you think that, you know, that there's maybe another reason why that, uh, that that you have like a differing opinion from, you know, a lot of these, uh, I guess, Wall Street guys? Okay, so there's a lot to break down there because there's a number of different ways to 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 approach that that very question because I do approach it from like multiple angles. So as an undergraduate with a chemistry degree from the University of Florida, I was working with the high energy physics guys. Okay, so I was doing um, laser ablation of transition metal rare gas clusters in the gas phase. Okay, I unpack that. I was working with I was working with molecules that we were creating and then that had a lifespan of less than 50 milliseconds and then blasting them apart to see what their bond, what their, what their, the, the bond length and bond shape and bond energy were. Like we were doing fundamental research that wound up in the Janet tables of thermodynamic constants of the world. Okay, that's the kind of thing we were doing. And so my background is in that kind of, uh, of that kind of inquisition. So of experimental design, hypothesis testing, that kind of thing. Um, and, I wound up as an analytic bench chemist for 20 years, which is like we, the, you know, the kind of people that I used to make fun of when I was an undergraduate, right? Oh, look, they just integrate peaks. And then, you know, oh my God, I, I, I integrated a peak and got some area under the curve and I can, I can correlate it to something else. We just used to make fun of them. Like the analytic chemists, they just, you know, oh, peak integrate. And I, and then, but then I became one. Then I are one, then I are one, right? And, um, you know, I, I graduated college and then, you know, I are one. Um, and I, I learned a lot about data analysis and data uh, integrity while doing that. And, you know, I've been the QC officer and manager of, of legally responsible laboratories. Like when, you know, when you're producing numbers that have to be challenged in court, you want those numbers to be good because that's the last thing you want to do. Go to jail for putting out bad data. Right. And so when you do that and when you really take, and I did some, some post-bac classes because I almost went, um, I almost went and got my PhD. And I remember in those classes, I learned all about signal noise 
And to me, every the world is a is another is nothing but a big metaphor for signal to noise. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at you know you're looking at the output uh, on an instrument or you're looking at the news flow. Ninety percent of what you see in the news flow is noise. Less than ten percent of it is signal. Okay, and that is politically driven by people who are intentionally trying to obfuscate what it is the, they're doing to tyrannize you. So I'm ungovernable. I'm a libertarian. I'm a chemist. I don't distr- I distrust everything I see, and I've got a rigorous hypothesis testing heuristic, which is at this point distrust but verify. So. It's not trust, but verify. That's the scientific method. I'm now into the opposite end of it. I'm now down to distrust, but verify. I distrust everything you're saying, but I'm not so black-billed as to believe you might actually be telling me the truth. That's my, my, my and that has been a hard-fought position to build over 20 years. So yeah, I have, I'm willing to entertain a hypothesis I don't even agree with. I'm willing to be intellectually rigorous. I'm willing to, it doesn't matter if we're talking, you know, philosophy of, we're talking philosophy, chemistry, markets, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, I'm not an orthodox when it comes to anything other than the fact that I know that I believe fundamentally that the world's monetary system should be built on bearer assets and 100% reserves of those bearer assets. I still have a, you know, just to to, to take a quote from Daniel DiMartino Booth, I've got a picture of, of you know Ludwig von Mises on my bedroom ceiling and Murray Rothbard's right next to him. Like I believe in that, but at the same time I'm also practical and like yeah, but that's not the world we live in. And one of the reasons what started for me, what really when I was when I started, first started out, nobody knew who I was. People were tuning into my live streams and we were I was just I was starting to blog and whatnot. And I was building a very small core audience. I kept using the phrase over and over again. I'm not analyzing the world from the position of what I want, but the world I've got, okay? The world I want looks completely different than the world I've got. And a lot of Bitcoin guys remind me of old gold bugs today. The Bitcoin maxis of today are the old gold bugs of the 1990s and the early 2000s. I've been there, I've seen it, I lived it, I understand the mindset, I understand the desire of it. It's very attractive. It's an easy way to go, no, I'm right. I'm going to stick by my religious convictions on this. Great. You should. These are your foundational principles. These are your, your, your personal first principles. And you should stick with them because your instincts are absolutely correct. But how are you going to get there? And how are you going to navigate the world as it exists today to get to that state and convince people that you're right? It's not just a matter of, you know, hodl and and make fun of anybody who disagrees with you. That doesn't work. You know what that does? That sends everybody back into the old system and you look like an idiot. This is why I, I complain about most libertarians. They do the same damn thing. It's nothing new. It's just a purity spiral. And so I, 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 I realized very early on, and I'm talking before I became, I started writing publicly about anything. I started my first blog in 2005. I realized that there was a very big and large communications gap between of what of trying to figure out how to talk to these various groups of people around the world that exist in the political and economic space and do so from their terms. Right? Tom Woods in the libertarian circles, I think, is one of the better is one of the guys who does it 
who did it really well early on. I'm not, I, I'm not even going to say that Tom's not doing it well now, but he's got, but you know, he has this, this thing and he does it and he does it very well. But he was one of the first guys because I watched his conversion in real time from a kind of classic, you know, conservative neocon to mouth breathing Rothbardian libertarian or, you know, fire breathing Rothbardian libertarian. And he was very sensitive to that shift. He talked about the need for strong communication. So I've always, for you're watching a guy today who's built a rhetorical war chest that's 15 years in the making that no one saw. And now it's here. So this is why it sounds so unorthodox and so unique and so fresh. But I realized, and I'm not busting my hand, patting myself on the back. There's always a need to embed up your game and get better at it. And so then what you do after that is you continually go into the corners of the markets where you are ignorant and go and learn and add it to the, the database of what it is that you think you know. And then add that to your heuristics, your 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 uh, your process improvement, your you know corrective, you know, your 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 root cause analysis, and you do the work and you do the hard work. And if you're willing to continually do that, you know, eventually you'll get a big enough following that you'll get other people who are like that. And then you have a big community of people like-minded who are doing that same thing in real time, trying to figure out what's actually happening. And um, I'm I'm I wouldn't say I'm lucky to have that. I've worked for it, but I'm humbled in the face of it every freaking day. And you should see the stuff that my people send me. And it's insane. And it helps. And then I pay it forward by trying to put it out into the zeitgeist, give them credit for it, and and move on. And then, you know, here we are. And sometimes I come across as an arrogant prick, but, you know, I don't care. That's part of the brand. Well, exactly. I mean, you're a New York guy, man. You got to be, you got to be like, bang, 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 get, get it going, get it, get the point in, get it out. You got to be brash. Right. I mean, well, I mean, I don't, we don't, we don't live in a world today, Brandon, that allows for the time for us to hold each other's hands and sing Kumbaya before we, you know, you know, sometimes I just got to give it to you loud and like the the quote Patton, I just got to give it to you loud and dirty. So it sticks like, you know, we don't have time for this. There's a, there's, you know, the hour is late, Sauron's forces are moving, and we have a lot of work to do. So if I can figure out a way to, like, cut through the, the shit and get, you know, to the core issue and, and give you a meme or a, 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 a pop culture reference or whatever it is I can do to get you a real good bond mot that you can remember and go, oh, yeah, that's the thing. And, uh, and then people just take that and they run with it. And, you know, I, I know that that's a very effective form of communication. So. Yeah, I mean, some people don't like it, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's coming from like a good place trying to educate and like show people like, hey, I've made these mistakes. I've kind of gone through that, that, you know, the trials and tribulations. So learn from my mistakes and listen to what, what I'm kind of saying. So, and there, I, yeah, no, that's, that's a very important point. I just want to one just to put a bow on that, which is the, the way you get to um, where I am now is the, the fearless being fearless about being wrong in public. Right. You have to be. You have to put yourself out there. And because the only way you're going to learn anything is to put out challenging ideas. You might not even believe in them. Like I'm perfectly capable of entertaining and arguing something I don't believe in. And then going, yeah, well, that didn't work. Now did it. Oops. But here it is. Again, thank you. And thank you for the input. Excellent. No, you're right. And I'm wrong. Like it's not a big deal. 
You know, if there's one thing the markets teach you in this life is that you're going to be wrong an awful lot. So you better get used to being wrong and you better. And then when you're in this business, this is one of the first things that I, that the editorial staff at Newsmax quizzed me on uh, right at the beginning and to impound it into my head, which is that you're going to be wrong. And how you handle being wrong will determine whether you're successful in this business or not. Because if you're not willing to ever admit that you're wrong, you will lose your audience when they clearly know that you've been wrong. So you have to own it, apologize for it, and move on. And yeah. I, I, like to use the, I like to use the metaphor of a hockey goalie, right? Hockey goalies have to live in the moment. They can't care about what's the most important thing in the world to a hockey goalie, the next shot. Mm-hmm. Not, the, not the one you just saved, not the goal you just let in, but the one that's about to come. Because if you focus on the last one, you'll never be able to stop the next one. So you have to, you have to accept what has happened and then move forward. Learn from what happened and then move forward. And every once in a while, and the hockey goalie at the end of the game reviews what he's done right and wrong, and then he tries to do process improvement the next night, works on things that he doesn't, he's not doing well. Well, for us market analysts, we're doing the same thing. We're constantly doing it in real time, constantly up, um, uh, um, updating our you know, view of the world in real time. And sometimes we're going to be wrong. And sometimes we're going to have to say, yeah, that, that didn't work. Okay. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Right. I mean, it, it just takes like looking in the mirror and kind of evaluating where you made mistakes, what you might've overlooked, all that kind of stuff. So, um, but you know, as we get into this kind of interesting time that we're in, right, we've had, Mm -hmm. you know, the fed raising interest rates at a, at a rapid pace, We've had, you know, massive amounts of quantitative easing in 2020, printing a lot of money, 60% of the money supply kind of just dumped into the market and a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so, you know, I, I'll just leave it open for you. Why don't you dive into your, your thesis here as to what you think is uh, kind of going on, kind of like your crystal ball for the market. I know everybody likes to uh, likes to ask this question and it is a tough one because, you know, like you said, it, it, it sometimes it's difficult when you're uh, either right or wrong, you know, people are going to come at you for your thesis. But the thing I think that is unique about yours is it, it seems like it's a little different than, you know, maybe the traditional finance guy on Twitter that I, that I see. So uh, enough of me rambling. Why don't you kind of go into your, your thesis here? Sure. So the thesis is that the Fed is at war with Davos, is at war with the globalists. And the important thing to realize here, I think what is if there's one thing that's different is in my approach to this. And I was like everybody else two years ago. Well, you know, Powell's no different than anybody else. Wrong. Powell comes from a different background. I've told this story many times. So I, I think I might even told on the Twitter spaces the other night. When I first started thinking about this, I first started looking at what was happening. And I could see that, I could see that Lagarde and Powell were at odds with each other. That had been brewing for months in public appearances together. The green... Um, not Green Swan. I, I always get it wrong. Um, and Phil Gibson always re- reminds me of um, of I thought the, it was the Green Swan, wasn't it? What's that? I thought is it, it was. Green Swan. I guess it is Green Swan. Yeah. Um, the Green Swan conference from early June of 2021, where you know he just basically told Lagarde to go stuff it. I'm not, I'm not coordinating Fed monetary policy based on climate change. It's not doing it. The end of the quanti- That was his. That was his way of saying the end of the coordinated ban- central bank policy amongst all the major Western central banks was over. And that had been in place since 2011. That was a big deal. And then two weeks later, he put paid that. 
by going, yeah, oh, by the way, we're raising the reverse repo rate by five basis points over the Fed funds rate. Oops. And then all the base money drained out of the global markets and the euro collapsed and all sorts of stuff started happening. And they're like, oh, you're really, Christine, you're, you think you control the United States. You do not. You do not control the Federal Reserve. And when I started thinking about it over the course of the next couple of weeks, I did a series of podcasts on this. Uh, I wrote a big article on it. I was talking with my patrons behind the scene about it. And one of my patrons at the time, who was very active on our private discussion forum, and as a man, as a hedge fund manager, and a man who knows all of the principal players, okay, knows all the principal players on Wall Street, knows Jamie Dimon, knows this one, knows that one, knows all these people, was excommunicated from them, from that circle for, you know, heterodoxy, heresy said they don't call him private like they sorry i hate to flub the line they don't call him private equity powell for nothing clearly not cut from the same cloth as bernanke yellen Kuroda, not even lagarde draghi and all the rest of them right so uh even jens weidman over at the bundesbank so you know again like everything else when you when you have that kind of insight or kind of that kind of epiphany um, or what Rene Girard calls a mimetic collapse where all these pieces, this version of reality you thought you had, you thought you, you, you lived by all of a sudden, all the data falls into place and you go, uh, Nope, I'm in a new world now. Now we go through those things as human beings. We call them eureka moments. We call them um, epiphanies. We call them whatever they are. They are a mimetic collapse um, in Girardian terms. And um, I have those all the time because even as an analytic guy, one of the things that I am also is, hate to say this, I'm a musician and a poet, an ex-poet and, and a writer and everything else. My left brain and my right brain communicate with each other. I don't say, I don't, when my right brain is screaming at me about something, what I call my spidey sense or whatever, it screams at me, I listen to it. When a when I'm writing an article and some random thought pops into my head, some rant, some seemingly random co uh, connection pops into my head, I write it down. I work with it. I reframe the entire article around this thing. When I was writing the article I just published yesterday, I was working on it and working on it and working on it. And then at some point, as I started, you know, I got the intro done and I, I said, you know, I'm like, I looked at some of my notes and the image of the windshield of the fly hitting the windshield hit my head. And I'm like, well, that's the, that's the controlling like, conceit for this article. That is not what I had in mind originally, but that's where it goes. And when you do that, and when you stay in present in that moment like that, and you're good at that, it allows you to be intellectually flexible about what it is you think you believe. So my hatred of the federal reserve had to take a back seat and what it represents philosophically to me and the central banking, which I fundamentally despise at the core of my being, had to take a back seat to what I was seeing. And what I see is that the Fed as an intellect, is, is facing an existential crisis as the guarantor of the U.S. commercial banking system, viability, is being beset on all sides by political forces that want to do away with their independence, the, central, the, the, the commercial banking interest of the United States, and really of the world, to be honest with you, 
and that the Federal Reserve is the linchpin to, to stopping this. Because what's the one thing communists hate? Private production of capital. Private assessment of risk. They want the government to handle all of that. And, in, and when you strip all of the bullshit out of the Great Reset, it is that. They want total control over the money, over your life, over, your, over your, all of your economic decisions. Which is where banking, and banking is an outgrowth of our desire to coordinate individual economic action into larger than life, larger pro, um, product, product than we can do individually. Right? If you want a bridge built across a river, you need to coordinate the capital and the time of more than one person or one family. If you want that bridge to last more than 20 minutes, you got to build a bridge. It's going to take millions of people, the coordinating the capital of millions of people to build that bridge. Going back to the classic Murray Rothbard um, uh, uh, lesson, economic lesson he would always give about the ham sandwich and how many millions of people went into the production of that ham sandwich when you break it all down, right? Well, it's the same thing. And, and, and banking is the me- mechanism by which, and free banking and is the mechanism by which we do that. So how are we going to have a modern society that moves forward technologically and moves forward to alleviate scarcity and to alleviate uncertainty in a, in a universe hostile to our very fucking presence? And we're going to hand it over to a bunch of shitbag Euro trash communists? And you think that Wall Street's going to go along with this? Yeah, okay, fine. Okay, boomer. No, they're not going to go along with it. Like, at some point, as I said on, I remember the first time I, 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 I was on Tommy Kerrigan's podcast. I don't know if you know Tommy Kerrigan, Tommy's podcast. Great podcast. Young millennial, probably, you know, young guy in his early 30s doing a great podcast. And I was explaining this stuff to him, and he stopped me. And he said, so what you're saying is that the Jordan Belfort types, the stiff white collars and the blue pinstripe shirts, were looking, looked up from sniffing cocaine off a Ukrainian hooker's pussy in the Hamptons and went, oh, my God, you guys are sick. Tommy's words, not mine, dude. And I'm like, exactly, Tommy, you got it. It doesn't matter that they're not white hats. They're acting in their own best interest to do what they need to do to, to, to make the world safe for commercial banking. Which, by the way, is something we should preserve. It's one of the, eighth, it's one of the wonders of the world. Now, in its current form? No, it's terrible. It's tyrannical. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. The leverage and the fractional reserve system and all that, completely abrogating all concepts of property rights and individual sovereignty. But we're not going to get from where we are to where we want to go without backing their play. Otherwise, we don't have any banking. Unless you're chuckling and collapsitarian, you know, unless you're saying, oh, no, let's, let's let Klaus win because in 20 years, the whole thing will collapse and Bitcoin will win, which is, a, which is the best I can come up with why the Bitcoin maxis are, are acting the way they are. That's nice. But in, in the meantime, like, you're going to leave that world to your children? You're gonna. Do you think this is actionable information that you should be giving to people on who need to figure out how they're going to, you know, structure their the last twenty years of their life, or how they're going to figure out how to, um, you know, raise children, grow a family, you know, build a family? Like, oh, really? Oh, we're just all gonna just go to 
go to war, live in Mad Maxim, and try to become king of Bartertown afterwards? What the fuck's wrong with you? Like, shut up, Spurg boy. We got work to do. And this is, this is literally what gets me angry about this entire community. And I take more, I take more shit today from Bitcoin maxis who just tell me, you're an old boomer, you don't get it, gold doesn't matter, Bitcoin's going to win. That's nice. I remember the gold bugs telling everybody the same thing. And oh, by the way, guess what? The only difference between Peter Schiff today and then is that then he was clean shaven. Today he's got a beard. That's it. And he was wrong then, and he's wrong today. He'll be right eventually. And I got news for you. Russia, Iran, China, India, they represent like three and a half or four billion people. They're buying gold. They're not buying Bitcoin. So whether you like it or not, the current trend is that gold will be remonetized. And then eventually maybe Bitcoin will be added onto the balance sheet. And maybe even used in some other way to collateralize parts of the banking system. That I firmly believe. And if you don't think that that's a goddamn massive victory, then I submit that you are a religious zealot who will lose all of their money eventually. I used to be one of you guys, so I know what that looks like. And my daughter's, you know, my daughter's 16 now, and I don't have a whole big dowry for her yet. But, you know, knock on wood, and this table is actually made on wood, we double the the community that, I, that and, you know, people actually listen to me, I will have enough money to actually give my daughter a dowry to go into the world with in a few years. So there it is. Yeah, I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> the the full-on <laughs> rant, you were just get, getting into it, just giving me the, the juice of the meat and potatoes there. So awesome stuff. But, you know, why do you think that it, it seems like there's kind of, you know, I mean, we got into why you think that there's like a disconnect a little bit mm -hmm. there, right? But it seems like a lot of people in FinTwit area or, you know, maybe traditional finance try to ignore or maybe not really take into account too much of the geopolitical lens when it comes to the analysis. So for you personally, why do you think that that is, you know, so, I guess, revolving around markets and affects, you know, your thesis and everything like that? Two things. When I first started going, when I first went to work for Newsmax, and I was, I was, I was asked to write Gold Stock Advisor. Now we, 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 we quickly rebranded around my voice, which was to open it up into much more of a commodities thing and give me some, some more space. I quickly realized I had been shifting towards watching geopolitics, certainly around 2013. And I was a complete geopolitical neophyte in 2013. And I still consider myself woefully ignorant in so many areas of it, as much as people want to say that I'm you know, I, I have people like, you know, Tom's the most brilliant. I'm like, no, no, you do have no idea what I don't know. I have so many gaps in my knowledge, it's not funny. Thankfully, I have great patrons, you know, who educate me about a lot of things. I mean, even to your point, Macro, the other night was going into some stuff about, you know, Turks versus Arabs and all this other. And that was very fascinating. I have, don't happen to agree with him, but that's fine. The, the, the cultural stuff, I absolutely agree with. The geopolitical stuff, I don't agree with them on. Fair enough. We're allowed to disagree. Construct, uh, constructively in, in, in a public space. But um, a lot of financial analysts are trained from a particular point of view. They have their imprinting. They have their business models. Their public persona is a um, 
uh, is an advertising platform for their business and for their their public persona. And, you know, they haven't been trained in it. And they've, you know, always, and a lot of them do honestly believe that markets are stronger than governments. And I'm not here to dissuade them of that idea. The problem is, is that our markets today, after 15 years of ZERP and NERP and central bank dominated landscape, what is, you know, do you believe, what do you believe about these markets and these economic indicators? And the, by the way, the foundational precepts under which a lot of these economic indicators are supposedly having, are supposedly worth value, worth watching. Why do you believe that they're any more um, predictive of the future than they've ever been in the past? Why do you think they still have value? When you have markets that are so that whose conception of value at the zero and negative bound, like I, I, I'm sorry, but they they lose their their power when you move into a different interest rate regime than you ever had before, and when the system is collapsing, and people don't have faith in the system anymore, the old relationships change. Sometimes it really is this time is different. And it's not different because human behavior has changed. It's different because we've reached an inflection point where the old behavioral sets or the old parameters on which the behavior was governed no longer apply because we're on the other side of it now. And and that shift is very, very difficult for people. I was talking with Ted Oakley the other day and Ted's older than me and I just published a podcast yesterday and I've you know, I've made this point many, many times, but he backed me up on this. And actually, I, I think I spoke with, I, I I'm, was on with Jay Taylor, another old gold guy yesterday. Uh, he's going to publish his, the, our conversation later in the week. And, and both of these guys, you know, confirmed the same thing. When I said this, I was like, look, when you both started out in the industry, you were the last generation of guys who remember life before Paul Volcker and 19% interest rates. Right? You got to be 75 years old. So every guy that graduated with an MBA and went to work for Edmund, Edward Jones or worked the bond desk at Goldman or, you know, all these defunct places like E.F. Hutton and Solomon Brothers and all the rest of it, I got news for you. You've only ever traded a primary bull market in U.S. Treasuries. Do you know what? Do you know how to trade a, a bear market in U.S. Treasuries? You think you do because you've been through a couple of short-term bear markets, but you've always believed that. The mark, the Fed would pivot, go back to this, you know, lower interest rates again and do the thing. But what happens when you reach the zero bound and you keep it there for 12 years? Do you really believe that we're not in a structural bear market for U.S. Treasuries? I mean, I can I mean, I, I hate drawing lines on charts, but by God, dude, you, go take the U.S. 10 year, go put a 60 year chart of the U.S. 10 year up and draw a, a, a best fit uh, line of the highs. And you can see that we hit up on a yearly basis. You know, 2022 was a freaking one bar bullish reversal on fucking rates. Oops. Things like that don't happen. That broke the 60 year trend line at the same time. Things like that's you're not in Kansas anymore, folks. And I think a lot of people are having a hard time adjusting there and they don't want to believe that geopolitics is actually what's driving markets when 
the markets themselves have become so politicized, so controlled by central bank policy, and there's such a collusion at the top of the political system with the financial system. The Fed trying to, as the most power, world's most powerful central bank, saying, oh, no, oh, by the way, the market is still king, and we're going to prove it to you. You know how we're going to prove it to you? We're going to raise interest rates so aggressively that you don't know what to do. Except stand there and go, oh, the Fed's going to pivot. Okay. All right, boomer. Keep thinking the Fed's going to pivot. You were wrong. I mean, I never dreamed that I would be right, so right about all this. I, in my, look, this time last year, or yeah, about this time last year, because it's March, and the Fed just started raising rates. I was saying privately, maybe even a little bit publicly, I have to go back over my, my, my public blogs and my, my public interviews. I said, what I want to see from Powell is him just rip the Band-Aid off and go to 6% by the end of the year. That's what he needs to do to prove to everybody he's serious. I don't think he's going to do that. I think we'll get seven quarter point rate hikes before the end of the year. We'll be at 1.75%, maybe 2%. And, you know, he'll never in my wildest aspirations did I believe we were going to actually see him pull a Volcker, even though I had been exhorting him for nine months, six months to pull a Volcker, that this is what he needs to do to fix the United States. And then by extension, begin fixing the rest of the world. And they did it. And here we are. And no one wants to believe it. Well, they're beginning to believe it now. And now this period from like November to today is watching different tranches of the market go through the five stages of grief, the Kubler-Ross model of the five stages of grief. And, you know, in November, it was 75% of the market was still in denial. 5% of the market had accepted it. Today, probably 25% of the market has accepted it, maybe 30%. But when you look at the Fed funds futures curve, you look at the SOFR futures curve, you look at the euro dollar futures curve, hard to argue that there's no goddamn way that anybody would believe. And even the move in treasuries we've seen in the last two days, that a, a significant tranche of people have, a, a critical mass of people in the markets have be, believed that the Fed isn't going to pivot. There's still this dogged belief of this. And um, this isn't to say that the Fed couldn't halt interest rate rises for a little bit, allow QT to take away in the background like Booth has been talking about, and provide some to provide liquidity and or collateral, whatever the market needs, out of its massive stock of both. I'm not saying it can't. And that would not invalidate the thesis. But it will to all the ninnies out there who want to be right, as opposed to looking at the data, and as opposed to looking at the incentives and the imperatives of the people setting the policy and who they're fighting and the way they're and the responses that you see from the from the people who have been on the uh, on the receiving end of the gravy train of zero bound money they're the ones screaming the most and you're carrying water for them and you're a bitcoin guy go fuck yourself go fuck yourself right here go fuck yourself no you're literally carrying water for the worst people on the planet. The very people who you believe are the reasons why you should be a Bitcoin maxi. And you're carrying water for them by trashing the Fed. When the Fed is doing your work for you in the medium term so that you can win in the long term. Jerome Powell has said, flat out, I have zero problems with Bitcoin. What I have a problem with 
are stable coins. Why? Stable coins are just fucking euro dollars. They're just another form of offshore dollars. And in this case, as opposed to it being the Cayman Islands or the Channel Islands or Hong Kong or Singapore, it's in the ether of the internet. But it's the same thing. And only the Fed has the ability to drain the world of offshore dollars. When the Fed is easy, when the Fed is easing, the Fed is just another source of euro dollars. They're no different than anybody else. It's just, you know, more euro trash, more flock of seagulls. But when they're raising rates, now we're into the real punk rock, as my friend Dexter White wants to put it. And now they're the dead Kennedys. Now they're the dead milkmen. Now they're corrosion of conformity. Like that's a different world. And everybody's still thinking that they're flock of seagulls. And I'm telling you, dude, they're not flock of seagulls. Not under not under resting hawk face Powell. I'm just not buying it. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you here, too, because, you know, it seems like with the COVID shutdown and everything like that, everybody kind of saw the entire global economy shut down because of, you know, everybody kind of being in, in, in bed with each other, you know, basically, you it's know. Like Powell, but, but just to stop for a second, remember, Powell hated all that. He came out publicly against the CARES Act. He said there, why the hell didn't you? Did, did, I was not con- consulted on this. Signpost, as Luke Roman would put it, signpost. And yet Luke won't admit that I'm right about this. Ah, the Fed's got to pivot. Ah, gold. Or and then and he's been gish galloping around this issue. I'm like, no, dude, I'm right. Just, just, I'm right. Get over it. Move on. We could be allies in this as opposed to ad, as opposed to nominal adversaries. We're not really adversaries, but you know what I mean. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're fine. I, I, I agree with you though. Like, I, it seems like. Every time Powell gets in front of people, he basically tells everybody what he's going to do. But for some reason, everybody thinks he's going to go against his word at this point. And it seems like, like you said, you know, you listen back to old interviews, you listen to what he's saying. He's like, we're, you know, we're going to keep raising rates. It's just like people try to ask him questions and put him in a box to guarantee that it's going to happen. And he doesn't guarantee it. But he says, hire for longer, expect more pain all these kind of things that he's saying. And for some reason, people are just aren't really waking up to the fact that this is what his end goal is to kind of continue raising rates throughout the, throughout the rest of the year at the very least. Mm-hmm. And so I guess like maybe they think that Powell just looks at the market so much that he's just like what Powell's just on a Bloomberg terminal or something, just kind of like listening to what everybody's not, saying. But I feel like he's kind of runs to his own, you know, he runs to the beat of his own drum kind of thing. And he's just kind of, you know, working on that. And he's like you said, like an America first guy. And I think a big part of that kind of comes from what we saw in COVID where, you know, when we had this global economy, and something goes wrong in some other country, that kind of drastically affects how things run in the United States. It has in the past, thanks to LIBOR and and the euro dollar markets and LIBOR controlling the American, um, the structure of the American debt markets. That is no longer the case. By afternoon, like we're all going to be on SOFR and LIBOR is not going to exist. So let's break it down for a second. What's well, I, I want to back up for just a second before we go there. Okay. And so, because what, because one of the things I want, want to, I want to pick up on what you just said, which is the following, because what you, you brought up a very interesting point about people trying to put Powell in a box. Remember that we have a media and we have politicians that are obsessed with getting the, um, uh, the soundbite that they want 
that they can use to then build their case based on Powell's words by selectively editing it. And so they ask questions that beg their hypothesis and then and Powell and then they use that to go, see, Powell was actually trying to pivot and everything else. And look, I used to be a hockey blogger, right? I used to remember sitting there listening to got to we used to sit there and, and try and and handicap and analyze what the GMs were saying around the deadline, around the trade deadline, same thing. Like, hey, every once in a while, maybe you should just listen to the GM and what he said as opposed to what you think he said. Stop trying to read his mind and just maybe assume for once that he's actually telling you what he's about to do. Because then if he does it, you were wrong. And so now, you know, like good poker players, you know, sometimes they're bluffing, sometimes they're not. And you can't always assume one thing or another. And this is, it's a very important point. The media is clearly in the tank for the people who don't want Powell to raise rates, for Powell to pull back on dollars, yada, yada, yada. So they're just trying to beg the question to write the headline, to get the soundbite that they need, to write the article that they want, to because they know that most of the day-to-day liquidity in markets is headline scouring algorithms. Okay? Human beings don't trade these markets. Computers trade these markets based on what corrupt human beings write about the markets. That's the world we live in today. That's the world that's been created by 15 years of NERP and ZERP. That's the world that Powell is trying to destroy. So going back now, to what you're about to ask, which is LIBOR, SOFR, and all of this. Yeah. So why don't you first like define what LIBOR and SOFR are for people who in the audience who may not know, and then describe why you think we're going from LIBOR to SOFR. Oh, we are going from LIBOR to SOFR. This is verity. This is policy. This is happening. LIBOR is the London Interbanking Offer Rate. It's an unsecured rate uh, uh, decided upon by 18... City of London banks, one of which represents U.S. interests, which would be J.P. Morgan's London office, and everybody else is a is either a City of London or European bank. So, it's a it's the it's the debt indexing rate that will be tomorrow's. So they set the LIBOR rate for t- at the end of the day, and then the next day, that's what the that's the that's the that's the the print for the day for all of the uh, derivatives and loan obligations and contracts that are out there that specify an interest rate and they specify LIBOR. Now, that has been the case for, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't even remember when LIBOR started, but let's go back to at least you know, the Marshall Plan in the 1930s and probably even into the 1930s and probably earlier than that. Certainly an artifact of you know, the days when, you know, saying like the London Gold Fix, where they had to have a, a, a rate to trade or a price to trade, you know, from a day-to-day basis, there was no way to have a market-driven uh, thing. They had to like, you know, call up each other and go, "Okay, so what are we gonna, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna price gold at tomorrow? What are we gonna price dollars at tomorrow? Or pounds at tomorrow? We gotta, we gotta have a number for everybody to trade." And that's fine. When you know, when we were doing shit with, with you know, with telephones and 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 you know, uh, ticker tapes and all the, you know, what I'm looking for, telegraphs. Well, that makes sense. We have computers today. We have global markets. Everybody can figure out what. Everybody can see each other in real time. SOFR, therefore, is an evolution of that to say, look, it's a collateralized rate based on uh, you know, repo 
overnight repo contracts that, that sell and that, that's buy, or buy and, uh, bought and sold in the real markets. And it's collateralized by actual repo contracts. So there's actual collateral behind the transactions. And, you know, it's built on, you know, what people are doing for real. Not what the, not what the LIBOR board says they did in an uncollateralized way. So it's a vastly superior product from that perspective. It's been in process to be rolled out over the last five years. LIBOR, um, all contracts that reference LIBOR have to be re-referenced or rebuilt or changed over or sold or closed by June 30th of this year, or there will be, or there then then things will happen at that point. And I was talking with a uh, a, a patron this morning who sent me a, a big um, note about the flowchart of what will happen. You know, he was sitting in on some banking conferences and, and whatnot, trying to explain what the transition is going to look like and what the flowchart for these these people is. And there's a lot of it, there's a lot of money out there that still hasn't sh- switched over. Um, but understand that LIBOR is an international rate for the dollar. SOFR is a domestic rate for the dollar. It's what's happening within the American system. And then you can go even further into like Ameribor and other and new other products that are building off of SOFR, where we will start seeing a re-regionalization of interest rates based on SOFR as the, as the foundational thing. And I'll be honest with you, I also believe that in the long run, SOFR will replace the Fed funds rate. We will not need the Fed funds rate because we'll have the SOFR rate. Why would we need the Fed funds rate? The Fed funds rate will, as, as the Fed funds rate is, as it has in the past taken its cues from LIBOR, in order to keep the global financial system from breaking down to protect the global banks who reference LIBOR to everything. Well, don't you think that the Fed funds rate is going to take its cues from SOFR if that's what the commercial banks in New York want? Of course they do. Now, the possibility of, of going back to an old... So that's what's going on. And I, and I can go on from there. I really do think that you know we may actually get, even get back to an old the old conception of the Federal Reserve as a US-focused institution for setting regional interest rates for money based on what's happening in the economic activity in the 12 regions of the Federal Reserve, which is why the Federal Reserve is set up in 12 different regions. Right? So, um, you know, because the cost of money in Mississippi is not necessarily going to be the same as the cost of money in California. Now I can go into I got I got I got reams of of content on what that's actually implied about how that's built the world and why the European Union's model for the euro is exactly the same as the California model for the friggin oh god I can I could do this all day, but let's just keep it simple. So from the beginning I've said look Powell is not raising interest rates to break inflation because he's got a demand side tool to try and break a supply side problem. We got supply chain breakdown thanks to COVID. We got we got uh, we got supply mismatches in the commodity markets and everywhere. That's not what what setting interest rates can control. That's about controlling demand for money. So, why is he raising interest rates then? Well, because he's clearly raising interest rates using inflation as a cover story to do what he actually wants to do, which is to which is to which is to wring out all the leverage within the offshore dollar market, which he doesn't have any control over, as long as the Fed's at the zero bound. But he does have control over the cost of international capital as priced in dollars by setting by raising the Fed funds rate. 
because then that forces LIBOR up and that forces SOFR up domestically and it forces LIBOR up internationally. And then all of a sudden, everybody now has to deal with it. Now, in the past, the Fed has always used that as a geopolitical weapon to bankrupt countries to, you know, that we were about to take over or yada, yada, yada. But in this instance, it's different. It's actually to target the very people who are the people who are trying to destroy the Fed, which is the ones who want to do away with commercial banking, which is centered around the old European colonialist money. Fuck those people. I, I don't, I have, I, I, they are the people we are, we are fighting. We are not fighting the Chinese. We are not fighting the Russians. We are not fighting the Indians or anybody else. We are fighting these people. We are being used as a weapon through the dollar, the U.S. military, U.S. foreign policy, blah, 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 as a weapon for these shitbag Euro, Euro trash commies who created communism, by the way. Remember, Putin told us communism is a European idea that you foisted off on, onto us and nearly destroyed us with. We're never going back to communism. Said that. Valdai, last year, right before he invaded Ukraine. Or not Valdai, uh, St. Petersburg. This is what we're fighting. We're fighting these people who want to use zero-cost dollars to enslave the world. And then default on all the debt that they've issued to enslave the world with and bring about their grand, their, their ever more perfect technocratic union. That's their goal. That's the story of the world. Fight me, bro. Tell me I'm wrong. Because everything that I see fits that narrative. It's that story. And the way you fight that is by taking away their most powerful weapon. What's their most powerful weapon? The debt indexing rate of the U.S. dollar and all of the U.S. dollar debt. So if I'm sitting at the board game table and I'm playing a game of diplomacy or whatever, and I need, and there's, I need to take a weapon away from my opponent, what do I do? I take that weapon away from him and I build a comparable weapon. So I build a superior weapon to LIBOR, one that is better for U.S. markets, one that's better for U.S. banks, regional banks, not just the big money center banks in New York, regional banks, community banks, com U.S. communities. What does it undermine? It undermines the spend, the, 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 the profligate spenders in Congress who are doing the bidding of these European globalists because they're all in the tank for freaking climate change and doing away with cars and eating meat and you know living on farms and all the rest of it. They're all in the tank for this shit. Elizabeth Warren hates you. AOC hates you. They're all freaking commies. Dr. Air commies. It's not hard. I'm not like, I, this, this gets me blood boiling when I sit here and go, Fuck off. These people are just commies. And they're doing exactly what they're, they're supposed to do to bring about the friggin' their version of a communist ideal. Marx would even be ashamed of these people. They're not even Marxists at this point. They're the worst kind of commies. They're French postmodernist commies who don't even believe in truth. Who believe men can get pregnant and menstruate. Like, it's insane. And these are the people you want to have running the financial system? No. Again, looking up from the Ukrainian hooker's pussy, smoking coke and snorting cocaine, going, you people are sick. 
That's the world we have. And SOFR is the weapon by which to break them. Because you break the euro dollar markets and you, you force the pricing of offshore dollars to be based on domestic demand for dollars here in the United States. Our banking system is mostly decoupled from theirs. When LIBOR goes, when LIBOR goes away and everybody has to re to 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 reindex their debt and re and re and you know and amend all the contracts and everything else. Oh, by the way, this is just the first stage of it. The next stage of it is to get rid of all the other big foreign central banks who are supporting this globalist regime. And I think the last one to do so is the Bank of Japan. I haven't written about this yet. I only talked about it obliquely. But this is why they went after the SNB last year, the Swiss National Bank. It's why they, they performed a coup against the Bank of England. It's why they're continuing to go after Credit Suisse today. And oh, by the way, all the Bitcoin maxis and all the and all the dollar bears, when the Fed comes in again to bail out Credit Suisse, because Credit Suisse is still under attack from these freaking people, they will all scream that the Fed is wimping out. And you're wrong, Tom. I will dollars the dog shit. I will hear this incessantly for a week. And I will continue to say the same thing. Credit Suisse and the Swiss National Bank are on the Fed side in this. They got off this gravy train a while ago. When they broke the peg to the euro, they did it on purpose. Okay? The, they had to because the Swiss National Bank is the largest equity hedge fund in the world. That's what it is. Zero cost dollars turned the Swiss National Bank into the biggest equity hedge fund in the world. They are staggeringly exposed to a collapse of the equity markets. All right. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can do this all day, dude. I know. You you leave me speechless at the end of these. I don't even know what to say to all that. But, you know, we already went through like a three-hour kind of thing of your, of your thesis, and we got an hour in here. So I know we can go and do this all day, but I don't want to take too much of your time. So why don't you tell people where they can find out more about what you got going on, your content, and, uh, yeah, where they can connect with you. Sure. I, I, in some ways, I hate to leave it on that final point like that, but it maybe it's a good it's a good way to whet everybody's appetite a little bit as well. I mean, I'm a completionist kind of guy. I want to make the whole point right, and I, the whole point takes four hours. Yeah, and, and hey, it, it leaves it leaves room for future ones. So everybody's okay. gotta you know subscribe and and come to the come back to the pod because Tom's gonna come back sometime in the future. <laughs> He'll be back on. So there you go. We're, we're leaving I, the I, you know, again. Happy to do it, and you know, um, and but my my the public work is all at tomlongo.me. I cross post the podcast there. We have we have a podcast as well, um, but I also put a lot of stuff behind the paywall for my patrons over Patreon slash Gold Goats and Guns. As a matter of fact, when I get off of this call, I'm gonna finish my work day out by writing a, a short post, what I call the morning munchings um, for my patrons. I've got a couple of, and it's basically my notebook or my journal of what I think is coming next. I, so whatever new ideas in my head is gonna go to them first and then comes into the world eventually. Um, we do twice weekly, what I call market reports, which is you know a 20 minute rant, anywhere from a 15 to 20 minute rant. And then I do technical analysis of the strategic markets like gold, silver, the Dow, credit spreads, other things, whatever I think is important. I also do bespoke chart reads for people. After 25 years of reading charts, I'm actually quite good at it now. Again, you know, when you're good, when you, if you do something for 25 years, eventually you get good at it. Um, hard fought, hard won. A unique way of looking at markets as well. So not your typical tile uh, technical analysis. Um, and then we also put out the Gold Goats and Guns monthly newsletter, which has a, a portfolio, all original material. 
uh, by, by both myself and my partner, Dexter White, who, if you think I'm a hoot, wow. Like, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot. And Dexter's been on the, the, the Gold Goats and Guns podcast many times, but he's, been, he's busy right now kind of trying to build you know, our, our, the next version of our user interface, and which has a lot of, which needs a lot of work. So um, that's where we are. And that's what we do. And uh, it's not terribly expensive. And, uh, you know, for 12 bucks a month, you get it all. Yeah, great stuff. And I'll put all those links in the show notes and in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube and show notes if you're listening on audio. So be sure to give Tom a follow and yeah, listen to all his content. I mean, if this didn't get you jacked up about uh, all his stuff and you see the passion behind his thesis and him like really working hard for you, I don't know what will. So Tom, I mean, thanks. again, thank you, Brandon. I, but I'll say one thing. I mean, I, dude, I'm an asshole. I don't, I don't mince words. Um, I put, uh, I put as many people off in this life as I, as I have, as I've brought in at the same, but really it is, you know, I'm happy to be challenged on a lot of these fronts. And I, I, I know the limits of what I don't know. I tried to explain that the other night in the, uh, in the Twitter spaces we did, which was a much more sedate version of me. It was like, cause I didn't know the audience. Um, and the, the thing is it, this isn't, I didn't come out of this just because I want to be unique. I came at this originally to say, okay, what's the next big idea that could possibly be in the market? I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong, but let's, let's play this out. That it's, there's a, you have to remain humble in the face of this, even when you're digging your heels in, right? Because if you don't, you know, you could be wrong and then catastrophically wrong. And then what do you do? Then you look in the mirror and you go, how do I get out of this one? Right. And then most people fail. And I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, the best thing to do is to just not, just not, don't go there in the first place. It's always be relatively generous to somebody who has a, um, who has a, 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 a sincere, you know, uh, what's the word I'm, uh, challenge to the things you're saying. If they're sincere about it and not just being flip and, you know, the, you know, frankly, the typical Bitcoin maxi, okay, boomer. Um, like if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, engage me seriously, I'm going to engage you seriously. And I'll take you seriously. But if you're not, well, then I'm going to give as good as I get. And yeah, we'll let the record stand. Yeah, it's great stuff. And if you can't see the passion behind it, too, obviously, you know, you know, and if you heard the Twitter spaces and everything, you heard Tom and Deer Point kind of going back and forth. They had differing opinions, but it was, you know, great discourse. And I think that was a, a conversation I really enjoyed. That's also on the YouTube. So if you want to check that out, yeah, be sure is. to do that. But Tom, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation, man. Uh, I, like I said, I'll have to have you back on at some point in time. Uh, we'll probably try to strategically time that one out. But uh, sure. thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for the for, for both invites. Phil Gibson over QPOL was able to do the um, to, 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 to facilitate this, as always. Phil is, a, I like to call him my, my Padawan. Uh, but he's coming into his own pretty quickly. And he's, he's an impressive young man. And I'm... Um, and, uh, you know, shout out to Phil. You should be following his work sincerely. He's very, very good. He's building on a lot of the ideas that I have, but he's taking it. He's making a lot of the stuff his own. So, um, you know, more power to the people, more power to people who are honestly inquiring as, as to what's trying to what's ha what's going on out there, because that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to make sense of this insane world. For sure. So shout all out right. to Phil. Yeah. Follow him as well. Thanks, Tom.